And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, the second best day of the week as we get ready to wrap up this trading week and also getting ready to head into the end of the month. End of the month right around the corner. Remember, February, 29 days. So they're just going to drag this month out as long as possible. I actually have a, a friend of mine, his son is his son and daughter, oh, his son's getting married, right? And so they have now scheduled their wedding on February the 29th. Sadie Hawkins Day. Right. And so this is genius, though. On his part, he's only got to remember his anniversary once every four years. Exactly. So now, the bad side is if you forget that, you're really in the doghouse. Yeah, there's that. Right? Yeah. So anyway, this is kind of a genius idea. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> February 29th. <laughs> only have to do anniversary once every four years. It's not our anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. Uh, all right. So, look, lots of stuff uh, happening overnight, of course, as the world's most important company, NVIDIA, reported earnings. Uh, sales surged, uh, had a big jump in revenue. In fact, they booked more revenue in one quarter than they did for an entire year. So, you know, it's just been going gangbusters for NVIDIA, of course, that's also been driving the market at $1.6 trillion in market cap. It's going to be worth more than that today. Um, as the stock's going to open up about 15% at the open. It's going to take out, so it had this recent correction back to the 20-day moving average. Nice little entry point for the stock. Stock's going to open up above 770 this morning, right, right at 770. So it's going to take out uh, this recent high, open up at new all-time highs this morning. Of course, that's also now pulling up the rest of the market with it. Futures this morning up sharply on the S&P, and NASDAQ's going to be up almost 2% this morning uh, at the open. Uh, the S&P is going to be up about 1.5% at the open. So all of this kind of concern recently in the markets are getting resolved very quickly. And even though NVIDIA and the market are on sell signals, they're not going to matter. Uh, we're going to be back near all-time highs on the S&P this morning when the market opens. Now, whether or not we stay there all day is going to be kind of a different story. But uh, we'll come back and talk about this in a second when we talk about the markets. Um, real quick. The Federal Reserve out yesterday, and Mike and I will talk a little bit more about this this morning. The FOMC minutes were out yesterday, and two things really kind of came out of that, uh, those minutes more than anything else is one, is that the Fed is not in a rush to cut rates. So one of the things that we've talked about before, uh, and one of the risks to the markets, at least near term, is this disconnect between the markets expecting numerous rate cuts this year, uh, versus what the Fed is saying. And, and again, I'll talk with Mike more uh, in detail about what those men have said. But the other interesting thing that came out of that was that about reducing the, the rate of quantitative tightening. So the Fed's concern is about the drop in reserves in the markets, and they're worried about the repo market in particular, where we have another 2019 event where they were having to really step in to help boost the repo market. But at the same time, we have a lot of liquidity coming into the markets. In fact, we've had a very strong rise in liquidity ever since last, last October, which has corresponded with this rise in the markets. And I posted a chart of this out on Twitter this morning. 
But when you see the, the amount of liquidity coming back into the markets, of course, this is why asset prices have been rising. You know, there's, there's not really a concern of liquidity for the markets. It's just a question of liquidity for repo markets. So if the Fed is going to have to start reversing QT, what does that mean for the markets? And again, you know, one of the concerns that individuals have had is, you know, are we starting to replicate, particularly when you take a look at stocks like NVIDIA uh, in particular, and a lot of these other tech stocks that have just kind of gone to the moon here recently, are we repeating another type of bubble cycle in those Magnificent Seven that we've seen previously? And again, when we talk about Magnificent Seven, it shifts a little bit here and there. Tesla's out, Eli Lilly's in, but you get the point. Um, are we seeing kind of a repeat of some of these more bubble type attitudes in the markets and this idea with market and, and market behavior in general that stocks can only go in one direction and that's higher. So here's what you need to know before the bell. We're gonna, we'll get into all that, but here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. So markets came down again yesterday. We sold off during the day came down and retested that 20-day moving average again. So again, this primary trend line of the market since the October lows, and remember back in October last year, everybody was concerned that you know we're going back into a bear market. We're having this correction during the summer. We were down 10%, very, you know, uh, lots of concerns about where things were headed. Then, of course, in November, we started this rally, and that also corresponded with the increase in liquidity. And since then, the 20-day moving average has continued to be the primary trend line to support this bull rally. Any come, every time we've come down and tested this 20-day moving average, it continues to hold. Now that confirms that the bull market is still intact, at least for the moment. And so yesterday came down, tested again. We actually tested it for the last two days, bounced off of it both days, have turned up. And this morning, because of NVIDIA's earnings yesterday, we're going to have a big jump this morning and markets are going to be back up at this previous top. So you know, again, so two things going on here. We still have this consolidation going on in the market. So markets really haven't gone anywhere now for a couple of weeks. We've just been trading up and down, but we're compressing that consolidation. So if the market does break out of this little consolidation, we're going to continue to move higher near term. Uh, and again, there's all indications of that. The only concerns are, and again, have been, is that we continue to run at a fairly elevated rate in terms of the market. So in other words, when we take a look at the market overbought, oversold conditions, we're still pretty overbought. We do have a sell signal in place that'll probably reverse today. We'll see what happens today or tomorrow. Um, if this market follows through, we'll reverse that sell signal again. That's not uncommon in markets where we are right now with a lot of bullish sentiment behind it. These markets can stay overbought for a fairly long time. The one thing we've got going on though, of course, is this overbought condition of relative strength. That's been declining. So we've actually had this negative divergence between the markets and relative strength. So we need to see relative strength pick back up here to support this market if it's gonna to continue to move higher in the short term. And again, now these are short term indications. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with long term, but in the short term, if we can improve relative strength, flip this buy signal, uh, this sell signal back into a buy, this market can continue to move higher, at least for now. The question though becomes ultimately, you know, this market's gonna have to correct itself at some point. But again, that's always kind of the hard part to determine is the timing. You're going to get a correction 
of 5 to 10%. We've talked about this before. The problem is just the timing of it. And again, you know, last if we go back to last year, this time, really, um, if you'll remember in March, April, May, and March of last year, we had the Silicon Valley bank crisis. Markets stumbled. And then we had the AI chase in April, May, June, and July. So four months that market rallied fairly strongly. We were up about six, 15, 16% in the first half of 2023. Then we had a 10% correction. So very similar to that rally, we've had November, December, January, February. So four months of this rally, just like we saw last year, same type of magnitude of the rally as we saw last year. Will this ultimately end another five to 10% correction? Probably. And 5% corrections happen on average every year. 10% corrections happen every one and a half years. So again, we're well within the time frame and both of extensions of the markets, et cetera, that you're going to get a correction. But for now, again, all you have to do is watch this 20-day moving average. That's your indicator, most likely, that we're going to start a correction. As long as we can continue to sustain this, portfolio allocations are fine. All right, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. We'll come back. We'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz. We'll talk about the Fed, the Magnificent Seven. Is it in a bubble? We got it all for you this morning. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Nothing sinks a marriage quicker than money issues. If the Valentine's Day glow has faded, promise you'll respect your lover's credit. Communicate about your money and share together our first candid coffee for 2024. Five money habits of unhappy couples. Saturday, February 24th. Richard Rosso and Danny Ratcliffe will have money tips to help revive your financial harmony. Register now at Real In investmentadvice.com. Five money habits of unhappy couples. Candid coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Good morning. Um, you back off a little bit. <laughs> gotcha. I know. You're right in my face. You're all up in my face. All up in my grill this morning. All right. A couple of things going on. Uh, let's start. I know y'all want to get to NVIDIA. We're going to get to that. We'll talk about the Magnificent Seven. Let's start a little bit with the Fed, though, because, again, that's going to be driving interest rate policy. A couple of things that are going on here that I think are, are key and this is, these are going to be key to the markets as well. So, you know, while the markets are doing fine right now, again, nothing nothing wrong with the markets. No reason to be bearish on markets at the moment. You know, when that occurs, we'll certainly help you with that. But there are some things out there that are going on, particularly with the Federal Reserve, that are interesting. And again, uh, yesterday was the release of the FOMC minutes, and there were some interesting there were some interesting statements in those FOMC minutes that the markets you know, really didn't pay much attention to yesterday and certainly aren't paying attention to them today. Um, but one of those was talking about future rate cuts because, again, the markets are continuing to kind of bank on this idea that the Fed's going to cut somewhere five to seven times this year. And, and we've talked about for a while is that 
the markets and the Fed are going to have to come into alignment at some point. So either the Fed's going to have to become more aggressive about cutting rates, you know, or the market's going to have to give up on this idea of as many rate cuts. And this was one of the statements. And so talking about that specifically in the minutes yesterday was this statement. Participants generally noted that they did not expect, did not expect, it would be appropriate to reduce the target range for the Fed funds rate until they had gained greater confidence that inflation was moving sustainably towards 2%. Most participants noted the risk of moving too quickly to ease the stance of policy and emphasize the importance of carefully assessing incoming data to judge whether inflation is moving towards 2%. Now, here's the interesting point about that, is that if you take a look at core inflation and and again you know mike and i talk about the inflation reports we write articles about this um but cpi was a lot hotter than expected last month and that was because of shelter but even in the core we're seeing core some of the core pressures of inflation rising again now some of this has base effects in it some of it is simply the function of supply and demand in the economy the economy is doing just fine now and so we're seeing inflation tick up but there's there there's not immediate evidence that inflation's falling towards 2% from the Fed measures. And I want to emphasize that because when I turn this over to Mike here in a second, he's going to bring up the Truflation Index that shows 1.8% inflation. But anyway, Mike, uh, your thoughts about the notes yesterday? <laughs> First of all, I commend the Fed. I, I think they're doing the right thing. And, you know, we've talked about this numerous times. Why cut rates when you don't have to? So they just want to make sure that inflation is is getting back to their target. And that's their goal. That's been their goal all along. So, you know, we've been kind of surprised the markets, you know, especially when the market is pricing in seven or eight rate cuts this year. It's like, what are you pricing in? The economy is doing fine. Inflation is still above target. It's trending lower, but but it's not anywhere near target, you know, especially when you look back at the last 20 years. There were very few periods. Inflation was above 3%, targets 2%. So I actually commend them for trying to hold the line and just make sure that inflation gets back to where they want it to be. And right now, like you said, the last set of inflation data kind of says that inflation may be getting sticky here. And that's what Powell said at his press conference too. So that part of the FOMC, the minutes from the FOMC meeting were not surprising. I just think they wanted to further cement that that fact home with the market yeah and, and again you know the markets really didn't pay much attention I, I i shouldn't say that i just shouldn't say the markets didn't pay much attention to it because yields popped yesterday uh, slightly right after you know that announcement so again the bond market at least said hey there's you know maybe we need to kind of rethink our th ourselves for a moment uh, markets didn't really care too much um because right after the minutes, the markets took off and were negative most of the day and the minutes came out and then the market runs back up into positive territory um you know, so and today we're going to be up one and a half, two percent, depending on the index. But, you know, if you read further into those minutes, there's there is a risk out there that is going unappreciated by the markets. And that is really what's going on with, you know, reserve balances and the reverse repo. And they said this in light of the ongoing reductions in the usage of the reverse repo facility, many participants suggested it would be appropriate to begin an in-depth discussion of balance sheet issues at the next meeting. So the next meeting is March coming up some participants remarked that given the uncertainty surrounding estimates of the ample level of reserves slowing the pace of the runoff could help smooth the transition to level of reserves that could allow the committee to continue balance sheet runoff in the future so I'll, you know 
one of the things that, that's been interesting, and I posted a chart this morning on Twitter of kind of Fed liquidity, and that's been rising. We've actually two charts on Fed liquidity this morning. Liquidity has been rising ever since November, which is why we're seeing the markets perform so well. But at the same time, there's this issue of the balance sheet runoff. The Fed's trying to reduce you know, quantitative tightening. The markets are running up. Financial conditions are as easy today as they were in 2020. If you take a look at the Fed liquidity index, they're as, as easy as they were back in 2020, yet we don't have stimulus checks and everything flying around the country. So you know, financial conditions in terms of the markets, everything is fine. But this reverse repo facility and, Fed res and, and reserves for the banks are continuing to be under pressure. And so, Mike, you know, the question is, is, you know, is, is the Fed potentially jumping the gun too soon on, on stopping QT, given what's going on with the markets and, and overall liquidity? Or are they kind of doing the right thing here? I hate to say it again, but I'm going to commend the Fed. They're doing the right thing. They're trying to get ahead of a liquidity problem. The reverse repo was basically built up to what 2.4 trillion mm -hmm. for the purpose of absorbing excess liquidity that the, you know the the fed did so much the government did so much to fight the pandemic and the result was just a ton of extra excess liquidity that extra liquidity is getting put back into the markets primarily to fund the treasury right now mm -hmm. uh among other other reasons uh so what the Fed is anticipating is that the reverse repo program kind of heads towards zero, which it's been doing, and that is anticipated to occur some, sometime between March and May. And it's not that the, the reverse repo program goes away or goes down to a very low balance. It's that there's no more excess liquidity in the system. And that is potentially a big problem for markets. So what the Fed is saying is, look, we see this. We, we see this as a potential problem. And maybe we need to adjust the amount of QT we do because QT also drains liquidity. Mm -hmm. that, that's you know, one of, the, thing, one of the, the main purposes of QT. The Fed is putting bonds back out on the market, essentially, takes liquidity away from other parts of the banking system whether it's markets or loans to individuals or corporations, mortgages, whatever it may be. So the Fed is saying we have to better we have to start better managing liquidity because we're starting to get back to that point where we were in uh, 2019 when we had liquidity problems. And, uh, you know, the question is, will they know when liquidity dries up too much? Because it's not necessarily at a zero repo balance. It could occur even when there's a decent repo balance, say three or four hundred billion, or it may not occur till that thing has gone away and five months have elapsed. Uh, it's just very hard to measure true liquidity in the system because a lot of it is just based on banks' willingness mm -hmm. to lend and the the willingness of borrowers to borrow. Well, um, no, go ahead. No, and just the amount of leverage being demanded by the market. If the market's not demanding leverage, the need for liquidity is less than in a highly speculative market where the demand for liquidity is more. So there's a lot of factors that are not that are impossible to calculate. But for you know, for what the Fed's doing, for what all of us can do is we can watch that repo program and realize that that's 
that's a big chunk of liquidity that's slowly leaving the system. So and I guess this is my question, though, right, Mike, because if you go back, say, we look at bank lending standards, those are starting to ease somewhat. Uh, the dollar's been very strong. So all you know, remember all those concerns a couple of years ago of you know de-dollarization, the dollar's going to zero, et cetera, and the dollar's been extremely strong. So that's been dragging in foreign reserves into the country. Um, and this is all feeding in. You know, interest rates have come down uh, from where they were. So this is all feeding into overall financial conditions, which are making things much easier in the economy. And now we're, you know, so at the same time, the Fed's been reducing the balance sheet underlying Fed liquidity from, you know, the repo and, and other reserves and the Treasury general account balance, et cetera. Those have all, but that, that whole liquidity side of the index has been rising. And so it, it seems kind of counterintuitive, you know, the Fed saying, I need to, you know, I need to, you know, slow the taper runoff to make sure there's liquidity in the market. But there seems to be plenty of liquidity and, and particularly with financial conditions as easy as they are now, five and a half percent interest rates on the Fed funds really isn't you know, impacting the financial structure of the markets that previously has been the case, right? Normally, when the Fed's hiking rates, you're really constricting financial conditions, and it's been absolutely the opposite this time. So so let's talk about the Fed liquidity index, right? It, there's kind of three components to it. Um, one of them is the Fed balance sheet, whether it's doing QE or QT. One is the reverse repo, and one is the treasury balance. Um, I do it. So, I do it. But uh, we're, we're on a break. Hold that thought. Yeah, yeah. So hold that thought. We'll come back. We'll pick up with that. And then I want to jump from because the reason I want to touch on this and these financial conditions is that we need to then flip over and talk about the Magnificent Seven and this, you know, this very strong run up in the market that now people are back into the condition of oh, this is never going to stop going up, right? We're back to that kind of bullish sentiment. So we'll talk about all that coming up right after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so just talking a little bit about uh with michael leibowitz about liquidity and and kind of what's going on because obviously we have this can't stop won't stop market right now and you know, it's very interesting, as I said, you know, at the opening of the show, if we go back to March of last year, you know, we had a fairly strong start to the year in January and February, and then we kind of stumbled in March a bit over the whole concern over Silicon Valley Bank default, et cetera. And then the markets took off running for the next four months into July on this whole AI chase. And, was, and you know, during that same four month period, it was all about AI, who was announcing AI in their earnings, NVIDIA's earnings, et cetera. And we got into this attitude in the markets that this market is just going to keep going up, right? There's nothing going to stop this market from going up. I mean, I was getting emails daily. It's like, this market is just not going to stop. And I'm getting the same emails now. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, you're going to get a correction here at some point just 
for the function of, of something, right? The, probably not, nothing that we're talking about right now, but something will happen. It'll spook the markets. You'll get a 5 to a 10% correction, work off some of this overbought condition. But, you know, this is all about psychology in the markets at the moment and a lot of liquidity. And again, as we've talked about, as we're talking about just for the break, if you take a look at the Fed liquidity index, if you take a look at overall financial conditions, um, financial conditions, as I said previously, are as high as they've been since 2020. And, you know, when we're doing all the stimulus and a lot of this has to do with the strength of the dollar um, that feeds into financial conditions, lower interest rates feeds into financial conditions. So from the market perspective, things are great for the equity markets. And, you know, and, and, and as Mike was just starting to address for the break and we'll pick up there is there's some components in the in the Fed liquidity index that we kind of need to pay attention to. So, Michael, I'll let you start with where you left off. Components. One is just the Fed balance sheet. And the Fed's been doing $95 billion of QT a month. So basically what that does is the Fed is taking $95 billion of, of Treasury bonds and mortgages off their books, and they're putting it essentially onto the books of investors. So the investors have to come up with 95 billion. That drains 95 billion of liquidity every month. The second is the Treasury general account. So the Fed borrows, uh, the Treasury borrows money. They put in their bank account at the Federal Reserve. Like your bank account or my bank account, it fluctuates up and down. Sometimes it's just fluctuating with the flows of the Treasury. Other times they're purposely trying to increase it or decrease it. But right now they're they're purposely letting it come down a little bit to control issuance. So on the margin, that is that has its effect on liquidity. But the big one is this repo program. When the repo balances go up, it's taking liquidity out of the market to put into the repo program. And when it comes down, the, the exact opposite effect. So when we look at our gauge, the treasury account is, let's just, we can just kind of ignore that because it's kind of going up and down, but not really, the numbers aren't big and it's not going anywhere. We know the Fed's draining 95 a month and 95 billion a month. And then we got the repo program, which is declining. So it's releasing liquidity to the market. And that is potentially offsetting a lot of QT. First of all, we know there's only about 500 billion left in a repo program to, to to feed the markets with liquidity. But there's one huge missing factor, and that's the Treasury itself, who's borrowing a ton of money. And we know that those repo balances are going indirectly back to the US Treasury. So, you know, I, I think a better liquidity measure should also include net Treasury issuance, because they're draining liquidity when they're net borrowing more than is maturing. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, it sounds like the Fed's adding liquidity through these three or four, the Fed and Treasury are adding liquidity. But when you really put the four pieces together, they are draining liquidity. And what we find out is that loan growth is actually shrinking. What's growing is investment speculative mm -hmm. loan growth. But real loan growth to the economy is actually shrinking, and that's what the the Fed wants. They don't want a speculative environment either. But but I think for all intents and purposes, liquidity is shrinking, and the Fed knows that, and that's why they want to try to manage 
QT along with the uh, reverse repo program. Yeah, and I'm getting a couple of questions in uh, YouTube chat about where to find this Fed liquidity index. In fact, I just posted it this morning on Twitter. So if you go to our Twitter account at Lance Roberts, um, like the second or third uh, post is the Fed liquidity index. So I'm, and it's matched up to the S and P, so you can kind of see what's going on. Um, but you know, so so Mike, this you know, when we're talking about financial conditions, we're talking about you know Fed liquidity, et cetera. And then again, this is all kind of translating back into a very bullish setup for the markets. Of course, Nvidia's reports last night, um, twenty-two billion in revenue, which was more in one quarter than for an entire year. A couple of years ago, this company was making like six billion a year in uh, revenue. They did twenty-two billion and a quarter. So, uh, stock still trades at thirty-seven times price to sales, but you know it's hard to deny the revenue growth. Uh, they're going to be a two trillion dollar company today, probably getting very close. We're one point six trillion yesterday. It'd be roughly two trillion today. Um, so you know we're about to you know this has become probably the most important stock to the U.S. stock market. Again, yesterday markets were kind of down a whole lot. One stock reports earnings, the whole market's going to be up two percent today on the on the Nasdaq, one and a half on the uh, S and P at the open. You know, so a lot of a, a lot of of you know dependence on one stock in the top ten stocks of the market, which has been. Really, when you take a look at performance, the top 10 stocks have been driving the majority of the performance of the index really over the last two years. But even so far this year, the Magnificent Seven, uh, the top 10, however you want to classify it, have been doing the bulk of the lifting for the overall market. If you take a look at the number of stocks above their 50-day moving average, the number of stocks above their 200-day moving average, those have actually been declining uh, since the beginning of this year. But yet the stock market continues to lift higher on the back of these very big mega cap stocks. And so you kind of wrote an article this week asking the question that everybody's asking right now is like, are we back into a bubble? All right. So I so the Nifty 50 was a set of approximately 50 stocks in the late 60s, early 70s. And these are household name stocks, you know, your Coca-Cola, Kodak at the time. Uh, Polaroid, uh, you know, the, a bunch of stocks that everyone knew and everyone assumed that their earnings could grow much more than the economy and the market. So they had in aggregate PE price to earning ratios that were roughly twice that of the S&P. And, you know, very different environment, but at the time it felt similar to Magnificent Seven. You have these stocks at very high valuations that were doing much better in the market. Was it a bubble? A lot of people call it the nifty 50 bubble. So I stumbled upon an article from Jeremy Siegel. And what he basically did was say, oh, he wrote the article, I think, in 98. So about 25, 26 years after that bubble had popped and those stocks had fallen over 50 percent in aggregate in 1973, 1974. But what he did was say, OK, at the peak of the, the nifty 50 bubble, put that in quotes, were the were the valuations fair? What should the valuation have been? So, for instance, if the market price to earning is 15 and a stock is trading at 30, that doesn't mean it's expensive. That just means the market thinks that its earnings are going to grow much faster than that of the market. So the question he posed was, did they over the next 26 years, did their earnings grow? And in fact, their earnings grew at a rate greater than the market. And he basically backed into what knowing what their earnings were for the 26 years after the bubble popped, what should their P.E. ratios have been? 
And they were right in line with where they should have been in aggregate. There were some more, some less, but in aggregate, they were fairly priced. So his conclusion, I think it's a very important conclusion because it holds for today. He said that the stocks were fairly priced. The problem was that investors lost confidence in their ability to grow at those kind of rates. So again, in the 70s, you had high inflation, recessions, in and out recessions, high unemployment, and investors assumed they couldn't grow at those kind of rates because the economy was pretty poor and inflation and a whole bunch of factors. So the question we have to ask today is, are the, the Magnificent Seven stocks worthy of these high valuations? So what we did was we kind of used his logic and implied growth rates. So we said, okay, over the next 10 years and over the next 26 years, because 26 years is what he used, what do earnings have to be for this stocks to perform in line with the S&P and their price to earnings to come back down to market levels? And you know, if you read the article, you'll see the seven stocks and the implied earnings growth. Some look reasonable, some some may not be reasonable, but I think it's you have to look at each one and understand their situation to appreciate whether they can achieve that kind of earnings growth. And maybe what we'll find is like in the nifty 50, Philip Morris should have was dirt cheap at the time. Even though everyone thought it was in a bubble, it was dirt cheap. It ended up growing its earnings much more than was implied by the market. So my guess is we'll go through these seven stocks and, you know, there's a few others like Lilly and realize, and if we look back 20 years from now or 10 years from now, yep, NVIDIA may have been cheap or NVIDIA was too expensive. There's no way it would have to be the whole semiconductor market to grow its earnings at that kind of rate. Can Amazon continue to grow earnings while it's just totally taken up market share? Is there enough market share? Um, but those are questions you have to ask of each of the seven to really assess if it's a bubble or not. All right, quick break. We'll come back and we'll we'll pick up on that topic and also just uh, you know kind of talk a little bit about the Japanese Nikkei, which actually just set a new record after 34 years. Be right back after the break. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, welcome back to the show. So, just really kind of finishing up on our conversation about. Um, you know, kind of the markets, this Magnificent Seven. And, and again, you know, these kind of moves in the markets can last far longer than you can imagine. There's, you know, uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes is famous for saying the markets can remain uh, irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And that's always the case. And this is the, the, the big challenge for Mike and I and Nick and managing client portfolios here at the firm is, 
you know, from a fundamental side and from our fundamental base, which is where Mike and I come from because we're old and, you know, back in the day when there was like four people trading in the stock market, fundamentals mattered. Um, and, and we're now to this point where fundamentals really don't seem to matter. It's all about the Fed. It's all about liquidity. It's all about interest rate cuts. It's, um, it's about one stock. It's about NVIDIA, right? So goes NVIDIA, so goes the market. And that certainly doesn't seem to be a healthy, sustainable support for the market, right? In the near term, it can certainly be that way. But it certainly seems to be challenging if you start thinking about, you know, longer-term timeframes, two years, three years, four years, five years. And that underlying all this is that it's going to be economic growth that matters. It's going to be fundamentals that matter. Uh, it's going to be corporate profit margins, and, and, and the, which is a good example because profit margins for corporations are, are actually weakening, not strengthening, and yet the market's going higher. So, again, it seems that there is at some point there's going to be a, a bit of a realignment between markets and fundamentals. Either the fundamentals have to catch up with the markets or the markets will catch down to the fundamentals. And there's nothing that says the fundamentals can't catch up with the market. It just normally doesn't happen. It's normally over-exuberant prices catch down with the reality. And if you take a look at you know kind of what's happening with retail investors, right? Retail investors are back piling into some of the riskiest assets. The meme stocks are back. And that ended badly last time. And it'll probably end badly this time. But again, in the, in the middle of the of the of the fury, right? And in the middle of the hype, markets can can keep going up. And this is what makes it a challenge. I mean, yes, you know, we own NVIDIA, we own AMD, we own Microsoft, we own Amazon, we own Apple, we own these companies, we own Google, because that's what's driving markets. We have to create portfolio performance for our clients. But at the same time, we have to manage that risk. And that becomes the challenge, right? That's the hardest part about managing a portfolio in today's environment is, is maintaining some type of risk controls in an environment that doesn't reward you for managing risk. And, and that's something we just have to deal with. And, I, and, I, and, and so to that conversation, I find it very interesting, Mike, is that after 34 years, the Nikkei just hit an all-time record high. So it took 34 years. It's the longest period that, you know, some people can find. Actually, there was a longer period going back into from 1929 to 1954. Um, but, you know, it's been a very long time for Japan to be technically in a secular bear market. It's been a 34-year bear market. Finally ended with this breakout to a new high yesterday. Interestingly, though, this week, Japan just entered into a recession. So investors, foreign investors are piling in to the Japanese stock market to chase prices higher. At the same time, the economy just entered into a recession, which seems a bit hard to, to kind of justify. Mike, your thoughts? Look, it's, it's kind of funny. I graduated college in 1990. Had I put my money into the Nikkei mm -hmm. at that time, put some money into the Nikkei, I'd finally be getting it back today. <laughs> yeah. They have been, they were in a bubble of epic proportions prior to 1989 and it popped. And they they handled, they didn't let it pop fully. They dragged it out over decades. Literally, it's called lost decades. 
to to help appreciate a lot of it was it was both stock based and and primarily real estate based bubbles. The Emperor's Palace, I believe it's in Tokyo, is I think it's 275, 280 acres. At one point at the peak of the bubble, it was said that that was worth more than the entire state of California. Mm. It's just insane what was going on with property values. And then those properties were used as leverage so investors could buy more properties. So there was a whole domino effect. And, you know, as we see with bubbles, eventually they get popped. And because of the way Japan handled their bubble, it took them 35 years. Well, it took 35 years for the Nikkei to recover. GDP still hasn't fully recovered. So, you know, it's but what's hard with markets with with what we do is we have a really good sense of macroeconomics, what's going on in the world. We have a good sense of what's going on in the market. Right. And. At times they're very in they're very much in unison. Other times they're not. So, you know, what you have is a market that's going up in Japan. And investors, not just in Japan, but around the world, see that occurring. And they're jumping onto that bandwagon. Now you also have to remember that as part of this bubble cleanup that's been going on 35 years. The Bank of Japan has not only been buying bonds like the Federal Reserve, they've been buying stock ETFs. So I think they own, you could correct me here, Lance, don't they own like 60 or 70 percent of all stocks? Uh, you might want to try eight. You might want to try 80 now. 80 yeah. percent. So the point is, like the price of anything, supply and demand matter. So the supply of stocks is not that great in Japan. The demand doesn't take a huge increase in demand when you have so little supply to push the stock prices higher. And well, again, and you it's know, a, it's a, and it's this a is my story. But, right. But that's my question, though, is that, you know, you, you take a look at the Japanese economy. Good example. Uh, the economy has rolling recessions about every three to four years, just went back into a recession. Interest rates have to be manipulated by the Japanese government because they can't afford a big push in interest rates. So interest rates remain near 1%. In Japan, um, you take a look at the average Japanese citizen. You know they, they tough time getting employment, tough time getting ends meet. Um, a lot of the Japanese youth won't get married and won't leave home because there's no opportunity for them. And so, you know, when you take a look at what's underneath the surface of of the market, it's very weak economic activity. Yet. You have a market running up very similar to what we saw prior to 1980 on this expectation that the that the Bank of Japan is going to continue to buy their ETFs, continue to buy the bonds, continue to do yield curve control. And, and that's not a, a functional market that can remain long term. And again, this is this, you know, what at some point you're, you know, the, the Bank of Japan is going to own 100 percent of the stock market, 100 percent of the bond market. How does that function? You don't have functioning right. of a market at that point. So, you know, are, are investors setting themselves up again for another very disappointing outcome by chasing the Nikkei higher here? Well, it's important to remember that Japan is a big exporter, too. So it's not just about their economy. Like we talked about Toyota last week. Mm-hmm. Toyota is the world's largest car automaker, right? So when you're when you're valuating Japan stocks like Toyota, you're really valuing the global market for cars. Um, 
I'm sure Toyota sells a lot more cars in the U.S. than in Japan. So the, the U.S. economy probably matters more to Toyota than Japan's economy. So that's, you know, one thing to consider. But yeah, I mean, this is how bubbles start when when valuations and prices rise much quicker than the economy. And they're fostered at times, you know, and it seems like more recently, much more so by Federal Reserve or central bank actions that that fool around with the supply and demand of assets in the market. They fool. This goes back to liquidity. They're changing the liquidity in the markets and pushing more money effectively, not directly, but effectively pushing more money into certain assets. It was real estate back in the 80s. You know, is there a bubble going on in Japan now? I wouldn't call it a bubble, but there's certainly stocks are getting a little frothy compared to the size of, you know, but mm-hmm. compared to Japan's problems, they have a massive demographic problem too. They're shrinking. Right. Yeah, and, that, and that's my and point. And, you know? and me and you would be young in Japan. <laughs> exactly. That's where we should move to. <laughs> no, exactly. But no, that's my whole point though, is that, you know, we're we're seeing you know, this replication of what happened, you know, kind of in the 90s, just in a different form today. And again, but we see this everywhere, this financialization of the markets, you know, this this interconnectivity between markets and central banks. And and these markets are being driven more and more by central bank activity more than anything else. And so it, it certainly seems problematic to maintain that type of narrative Long term, uh, you know, it, you know, again, there's there's these periods of time like now that markets are ignoring fundamentals uh, and economics. Again, uh, Japan's a good example. Uh, you know, Japan's hitting an all time high. It's It's gone completely vertical. It's up 24 percent just year to date in the Nikkei. So if you'd invested January the 1st in the Nikkei, you'd be up 24 percent on your money just since January. Yet the economy's in a recession. That doesn't really seem to make sense, but it is what it is right now. And, you know, keep in mind, their price earnings ratio is only about 16 or 17. Right. Ours is what, 24, 25, whatever it is. Well, it depends on how you measure it. Yeah. Right. So so it is it is is not I wouldn't call it a bubble yet, but it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, all right, that wraps up the show for the day. Uh, of course, uh, as always, get by the website. Michael's latest article on the website now, talking about the Magnificent Seven. It's was posted out yesterday. It's on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, along with our daily market commentary that's out this morning, as well as our weekly newsletter out this weekend. Uh, this weekend's topic, the conference board just gave up their recession call, even though their leading economic indicators suggest a recession's coming. That's where we are. <laughs> it's on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff with you in the morning. We'll see you then.